So, a few weeks ago, we started off um, a series on finding wholeness and harmony with our heads, our hearts, and our hands. And we spoke about the dynamic between them all. And I drew a little picture on a chart, and it was terrible. And so I thought I would get, uh, get a second chance at that. And so now we have the new and improved version. And um, if the wind would allow me, that's the dynamic that we're going to be looking at a bit tonight. You've got your head, your hearts, and your hands. And uh, last week we had Bevan talking about the head, and uh, he was speaking about how it's like the catalyst that starts off so many other things that go from our head, impacts our heart, impacts our inner being, to our conscious thoughts, to, to eventually to our actions. And so it kind of starts off the train for us, and, um, and he challenged us with Philippians 4 verses 8 to think about that which is good, that which is true, that which is right, that which is honorable, that which is admirable. Um, and to, to think about those things, which is lovely and pure and noble as well. Um, so tonight, I'm going to be talking about the heart, which is this one over here. Um, and I just want to remind you guys a little bit about the interplay that we were talking about last time. So obviously what we're trying to find is, is a place where we find harmony and wholeness and who we are as people. Um, and in the middle here, we have the cross, you know, because that's where Christians put good things. <laughs> and... Um, and kind of showing that when we get all three of these things working right in harmony, we're able to find discipleship. We're able to find ourselves in a place where we're following after Christ. We found that when we had just our head and our hearts going with no action, with no hands, then we were just dreamers. We were just kind of thinking of the good things and feeling the good things, um, but not actually doing anything. When we're doing with the head and the hands, but without any emotions, it's like we're robots just doing those things um, with no care or empathy and, and everything that we end up doing ends up just being um, with, without any kind of impact beyond that. And then we have this, this bottom dynamic where if you have hearts and hands but without actually using your head, it's that harmful helper. It's like painting a wall with a hammer. It's not really going to help so much. Um, and so that was, those were some of the dynamics um, that we had. And Bevan last time spoke about the head and, and how when that goes wrong... It tends to derail the rest of them. And so when our head starts to spiral out of control, we get caught in those thinking patterns of, of negative thinking patterns. Eventually, it's going to impact the way that we, we feel and the way that we act. And so we have to be really careful and conscious about our headspace. What is it that we're thinking and feeling? Yeah, so bidding will officially start for this at the end of the service. But <laughs> um, in the same way, we want to look at tonight when you're moving on to the heart, that, you know, this is one that's often misunderstood or just neglected, uh, thinking about the heart. We like to think that that which we think is important, you know, what we believe, what we know is important, and that which we do because of what we believe is important. Uh, th- those two make a lot of sense. But what we feel and the way in which we do those things, the emotions and heart we carry behind which we do those things is also impor- important. And so tonight we're going to look at the heart. We're going to go through the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, It's going to be wild. Um, And then we're going to look at the conditions of our hearts as well as what happens if we're not stoked with that. How do we we deal with that? And so let's start off with the ugly just because that's always a good place to start. Um, Matthew 15 verses 18 to 20 says this, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. He's talking about, you know, that which goes in as opposed to that which goes out. Um, and here we see a little bit of a hint of, of the ugly. In the beginning, back with Cain and Abel, there were two brothers that uh, were the first kind of sons of the world. And Abel came with an offering to God, and it was acceptable. But Cain, he went to an offering with God, to, to God, and he and his offering was seen as unacceptable. See, the thing was that Cain was doing the right thing. He was still bringing an offering to God. He was actually doing it. He knew that he had to do it, but his heart was in the wrong place. Instead of giving the best portions and out of, out of love and sacrifice to God, he, he kind of didn't. <laughs> and so it began within him as trail away from that which is good. Then it started to get ugly because instead of just acknowledging that actually my offering and my sacrifice needs to be something that, that's more of me, he looked towards his brother who got praise and was jealous. He looked towards the good things that God said over his brother Abel and in his heart, he hated him and he killed him. See, the ugly is when that which the world is throwing at us comes and pulls out the leg from the three-legged stool that is the head, heart, and hands. And everything else that was going all right beforehand seems to go away. Cain, from that point on, wasn't kind of doing the right things or, or thinking, what, this is what I need to do. Instead, his whole life trajectory was changed. In the same way that with the head, when we start thinking and recycling those negative thoughts and those negative pathways... Uh, over and over again it impacts the rest of our lives so when we allow our hearts to go to a place where it's ugly it impacts the way that we think and it impacts the way that we act one of the things that's really scary about this place is that it's very almost like you do things not really thinking about what it is that you're doing (laughs) in the sense of when when one is filled with anger in that place that driver um the dynamic between between the thoughts and the heart before the hands. It's like the thoughts are like that which, which goes into a Bunsen burner and the heart is what sets it on fire. And so that which we're thinking is fueled by the heart by which we're doing and it impacts the actions of what comes out. And so when, when we're fueled by fear, when we're fueled by anger, when we're fueled by hate, by bitterness, by greed, what ends up happening is that even the good things that we put in there turn out to be difficult actions. So that's the ugly. That's when it gets really nasty. The bad is, is not so much that our heart is leading us astray, but that it's almost just not involved. It's sitting there, like we saw in that dynamic of, of that robot way of doing things. You know, there's that, cool, I know what I need to do, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to have my heart involved. And, and in a sense, when we're working out of that space, we could just be automated. Uh, if we're wanting to feed the poor out of a place without compassion and love of Christ, all we're doing is taking one thing and handing it over, and we're not having the same... Like a robot could do that. It's not giving the same heart. And so... And, and I suppose you could argue, when are we ever not using our hearts? So hearts is constantly going to be there. But it would be the dynamic of... Not so much that our heart's not, not like doing some part in that, 
but that it's not actively involved in that part of the process, if that makes sense. And so we could be feeling really lazy that afternoon, but you kind of know, oh, I have to do this, so you do it. And when you're out going and giving these things, it's just not involved, it's not there. And so that's the bad. Jesus tells us that where our heart is, our treasure is also. And so he was like, you know, sell your possessions, sell these things that are, that are causing all this stuff, because then you'll be able to trade that in for the things that are more important. I'm going to tell, read a story now. That uh, I was reading a book this last week, um, and I brought it along because it's such a lovely story. And I thought, you know what? Everyone loves story time. Um, and uh, we're going to have a little bit of story time here this evening. This is from a book, Love Does, which makes sense because we're talking about the heart this evening, uh, by Bob Goff. Um, and uh, this guy really loves to talk about love, and I love it. Um, but I'm going to read to you a story that he introduces his book with that really hits me hard, really inspires me. And it goes like this. When I was in high school, I met a guy named Randy. Randy had three things that I didn't have. A Triumph motorcycle, a beard, and a girlfriend. It just didn't seem fair. I wanted all three in ascending order. I asked around and found out that Randy didn't even go to the high school. He just hung out there. I heard about guys like that and figured I should keep my distance. So I did. Later, I heard that Randy was a Christian who worked with an outfit called Young Life. I didn't know much about any of that stuff, but it did help explain the beard and made it okay with hanging out with, with young high schoolers, I guess. But Randy never offered me a ride on his motorcycle, but he tried to engage me in discussion around Jesus. I kept him at arm's length, but that didn't seem to chill his interest in finding out who I was and what, it was, what I was about. I, fig- I figured... Maybe he didn't know anyone his age, so eventually we just became friends. <laughs> I was a lousy student, and I found out I could take a test to get a certificate that was the equivalent to a high school diploma. I couldn't figure out how to sign up for this test, though, which, <laughs> on reflection, was a pretty good indicator that I should have stayed in high school. Mm-hmm. But my plan was to move to Yosemite and spend days climbing the massive granite cliffs. At 6 feet 4 inches and 220 pounds, I really didn't have a rock climber's build. I wonder what made me think there was a rock climber in me. But when you're in high school, you don't give much thought to what you can't do. For most people, that gets learned later. And for fewer still, that gets unlearned for the rest of your life. (laughs) At the beginning of my junior year, I decided it was time to leave high school and make the move to Yosemite. I had a down vest, two red bandanas, a pair of rock climbing shoes, $75 and a VW bug. What else did I need? I'd find work in the valley and spend my off time in the mountains. More out of courtesy than anything, I swung, swung by Randy's house first thing on the Sunday morning to say goodbye and to let him know that I was leaving. I knocked on the door and after a couple of minutes, Randy answered. He was groggy and bed- bedheaded. I obviously had just woken him up and I gave him the rundown on what I was doing. All the while, Randy stood patiently in the doorway, trying his best to suppress his puzzled expression. You leaving soon, he asked when I finished. Yeah, right now, actually. Uh, I said as I straightened my back and bared my chest to show I mean business. Look, Randy, it's time for me to get out of here. I just came to say thank you for hanging out with me and being a great friend. Randy kept his earnest and concerned look, but he didn't say a word. Oh, hey, I inserted. Will you tell your girlfriend goodbye for me too? You know, when you see her next. Again, no words from Randy. 
He had this weird faraway look on his face, like he was looking right through me. Then he snapped back into our conversation. Hey, Bob, would you wait here for a second while I check something out? No sweat, Randy, I said. I had nothing but time now. What did I care? Randy disappeared a few minutes into the house while he stood awkwardly, while I stood awkwardly on his porch with my hands in my pockets. When he came back to the door, he had a tattered backpack hanging over his shoulder by one frayed strap and a sleeping bag under his other arm. With a focus, with focus and direct, he said, was this, Bob, I'm with you. Something in his words rang right through me. He didn't lecture me about how I was blowing it, throwing away my opportunities by leaving high school. He didn't tell me I was a fool, that my idea would fall off the tracks on the way to the launch pad. He didn't tell me I'd surely crater even if I did briefly lift off. He was resolute, unequivocal, and had no agenda. He was with me. Despite the kind gesture, it was a pretty odd thing to think he wanted to come along. I'm sure, I guess, I said half-heartedly. You sure? Yeah, Bob, I'm in. If you wouldn't mind, what if I caught a ride with you? Randy stood with a determined look. So, let's get this straight. Do you want to drive to Yosemite with me right now? Yep, that's right. I can find my way back after that. We'll get there, get you settled in. And I'm not sure why I accepted Randy's generous self-invitation. I guess it's because it caught me totally off guard. No one had ever expressed interest in me like that before. Sure, I stammered, as we both stood awkwardly on his stoop. Uh, I guess we should get going then. And with that, Randy closed the door to his little house and walked side by side, uh, and we walked side by side to my VW Bug. He popped into the passenger seat, threw his stuff on top of mine, onto the back seat. We got to Yosemite before nightfall, and it occurred to me for the first time we had no place to stay. We had a couple of sleeping bags, no tent, and very little money. So we snuck in through the back of a platform tent, set up in one of the pay-per-night campsites. We slept towards the back so we could make our escape if an upstanding, upstanding tent renter showed up for the night. Fortunately, no one came. The next morning we woke up chilly, in, in a chilly but glorious morning in the Yosemite Valley. To the north of us, El Capitan soared 3,000 feet straight up ahead like a huge granite soldier. Half dome dominated, uh, yeah, a half dome that dominated the landscape to the east. These were my companions. This was my cathedral. I was in a valley-wide living room of my new home. Now it was time to get a job and settle in. I rolled over in my sleeping bag, thinking about how great it was to have Randy with me. I was a little nervous, but excited about my newfound freedom. I was a man now. I felt my chin for any sign of whiskers, nothing yet, but I shaved anyway, just in case. Randy and I dusted off the stiffness that comes with a tent, uh, with tent camping and went to Camp Curry ca Company Cafeteria. And I thought I could get a job flipping pancakes in the morning, which would leave the rest of the day to climb. I finished the job application in front of the manager and handed it to him, and he gave it right back, sternly shaking his head no. He didn't even pretend to be interested, but I was secretly thankful he at least humored me enough to let me apply. No matter, undaunted, I went to one of the rock climbing outfitters with a storefront in the valley. I told them I'd do whatever they needed. I was sure that what I lacked in experience, I could make up for, um, and by what I lacked in maturity and, and raw intelligence. But they said that they didn't have any work for me either, and that jobs were tight and almost impossible to get in the valley. I walked out of the store discouraged and looked at Randy. He was leaning up against the VW. Rather than feeding my discouragement or saying, I told you so, he fed my soul with words of truth and perspective. 
Bob, you could do this thing if you want. You have the stuff it takes to pull it off. These guys don't know what they're missing. Let's try a few more places. And then, just like he said the day before on his porch, he reiterated his statement. Either way, Bob, I'm with you. His words gave me tremendous comfort. I applied to nearly every business in the valley and struck out every time. There were simply no jobs available and no hope of one opening up soon. The evening approached as the sun, sun sank low in the hills. It was one of those sunsets displaying the kinds of vibrant colors that would have made a painter's canvas look overambitious. But I was still heartened. The sunset was real. I was in Yosemite. My friend was with me, and I still had a shot at my dream. Randy and I headed back to the campsite and snuck into the same tent we had commandeered the night before. I didn't sleep well or long as I sorted through my very short list of options. There was no work. I had no money. I was a high school dropout. Randy snored, and I had to go to the bathroom. That about covered my list of problems from least to greatest. The next morning came the crispness that only fueled my anxiety. Randy stood next to me in his sleeping bag and gave a couple of phlegm-filled coughs and said in a much too cheery voice, Let's go climb some rocks! So we headed to the foot of one of the mountain cliffs and bouldered for a couple of hours, talking trash about each other and who was a better climber. By midday, we headed back to the valley to see if any business had miraculously decided to expand their operations overnight. It felt like the shop owner's had quietly met somewhere when they learned that I was arriving in the valley and had conspired against me to dash my dreams. The same rocks that I had come to climb were now beginning to look like barricades. I applied at the remaining small storefronts I hadn't tried the day before. Do I even need to waste my breath to tell you what happened? Randy and I sat on the front bumper of my VW bug and leaned back against its flimsy and slightly rusted hood that buckled slightly under our weight. The sun was getting low in the valley again and the granite cliffs I'd hoped to count as neighbors were casting long, dark shadows on the ground, each of the deepening shadows pointing towards the road exiting the valley. I only had a few bucks left after buying gas, and Randy offered to spring for dinner. As we walked back to the car after eating, I turned to Randy and said, You know, Randy, you've been great coming with me and everything, but it looks like I'm striking out. I think what I'll do is head back and finish up high school. After a short pause, Randy said again, what had come to th comfort me throughout the whole trip. Man, whatever you decide, I just want you to know that either way I'm with you. Randy had been with me, and I could tell he was with me, in spirit as much as with his presence. He was committed to me and believed in me. I wasn't a project, I was his friend. I wondered if maybe all Christians operated this way. I didn't think so, because most of them I'd met up until that time were kind of wimpy and seemed to be more, have more opinions about what they were against than what they were for. But without much more discussion, Randy and I exchanged a silent look and a nod, which meant we were done. Without a spoken wo word, I hopped in the driver's seat of the car. Randy hopped in the passenger seat, and we followed the path cast from long shadows the day before. I was going back. We didn't talk much on the way back, uh, for, for that matter. A dream, a dream of mine had just checked into hospice. Randy was sensitive enough to know that I needed some margin to think and we drove for five to six quiet hours. Every once in a while, Randy would check, on me, check in on me with his confident and upbeat voice. Hey, how you doing, Bob? We pulled down some familiar streets and into Randy's driveway. There was another car in the driveway next to Randy's that looked like his girlfriend's. She visited often. So we walked up to the front door, he opened it, 
I walked in behind Randy, uninvited, but somehow still felt welcome. On the floor, I noticed a stack of plates and some wrapping paper, a coffee maker, some glasses. On the couch, there was a microwave, half in a box. I didn't understand at first. Had Randy just had a birthday? Was it his girlfriend's? A microwave seemed like a weird way to celebrate someone's arrival into the world. I knew Randy wasn't moving because there wouldn't be wrapping paper. Then, from around the corner, the other half of the couple bounded out and threw her arms around Randy. Welcome home, honey. Then the nickel dropped. I felt both sick and choked up in amazement. I recognized that these were wedding presents on the floor. Randy and his girlfriend had just gotten married. When I had knocked on Randy's door on that Sunday morning, Randy didn't just see a high school kid who had disrupted the beginning of his marriage. He saw a kid who was about to jump the tracks. Instead of spending the early days of his marriage with his bride, he spent it with me, sneaking into the back of a tent. Why? Is it because Randy loved me? It was because Randy loved me. He saw the need, and he did something about it. He didn't just say he was for me or with me. He was actually present with me. What I had learned from Randy changed my view permanently about what it meant to have a friendship with Jesus. I learned that faith isn't about knowing the right stuff or obeying a list of rules. It's something more. It's something more costly because it involves being present and making a sacrifice. Perhaps that why, that's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. I think that's what God had in mind, for Jesus to be present, just to be with us. It's also what he had in mind for us when it comes to other people. The world can make you think that love can be picked up at a garage sale or enveloped at a Hallmark card, but the kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. It's a love that operates more like a sign language than being spoken outright. What I learned from Randy about a brand of love Jesus offers is that it's more about presence than undertaking a project. It's a brand of love that doesn't just think about good things or agree with them or talk about them. What I learned from Randy reinforced the simple truth that continues to weave itself into the tapestry of every great story. Love does. Incredible, incredible story. Firstly, I love Randy. What a lad. <laughs> but for me, this is the most attractive part of Christ. You know, I love his, his mission and his power to bring restoration to the world and freedom for every captive I do. But the way he does it is out of this world. I think in this, this representation of the picture, it gives such a good whole full vision to see Randy right there in the middle of it. You know, in his head, he knew here's someone who really needs help. In his heart, he had love and compassion for this dude. And so his actions followed. It's a story of true, true genuine discipleship. I think as we go on from here, as we move from here and go into all the different places, one of the things that I want to do is to show Jesus like, like Randy showed Jesus to Bob. I can remember for myself times when I've been shown outrageous love like, like Jesus shows us. And sometimes it's simple. It's literally just someone taking me out for a breakfast when like, I can't afford it and, and they just sit and love me and be with me. Other times, it's much more deeper than that. Sure. 
So let's take it inward. Let's, let's look at ourselves. What's going on in our hearts? How do we get our hearts to a place where actually these are the kind of people that we become? So, like we said earlier, where our heart is, there our treasure is, is also. It's the overflow of our heart. One of the things that's important to realize is that we can tell what's going on in our hearts by what we kind of do on autopilot, if that makes sense. You know, the thoughts we can, we can tell what we're thinking by what we say when no one else, when we're not really thinking about what we're saying. But at the same time, what we, the way in which we act shows the heart that we have when we're not really thinking about what we're doing. And so for some of us, it could be kind of bitter and broken and angry and greedy and hard and difficult. And at the same time, joyful and loving and peaceful. And so what happens to our heart? How does our heart become a place where at the same time we could be having some really good times, having some really bad times? See, the reality is, is that sin is like a poison to the heart. Last week we heard about how deceit and lies create harmful thought patterns and that there's an enemy who's trying to deceive us. Well, in our heart, he tries to harbor envy pride, greed, lust, fear, anger, and so many other destructive emotions. And they gain access to us when we are sinned against or when we fall into the trap of sin. Our actions open us up to the emotion and feeling behind that action. But fortunately, we have Christ who loves us enough to help us. He could see us spiraling. He could see us in a place where things are going wrong. And he both provides things for us to do preemptively as well as redemptively once it's all gone to pot. And so there's two kind of main ways in which sin's going to hurt us. And we've speak, spoken about this a lot at PBC, but I just want to finish reiterating it because I think it's important. The first is when we've been sinned against and it creates this hurt within us, this brokenness. And that sits with inside our hearts until we deal with it. It's going to impact the way that we act until it's dealt with. And so until we deal with the things that people have done against us, it's actually going to shape the way that our heart is going forward. And that's why we, we deal a lot and talk a lot about forgiveness. Not for the sake of others, but for the sake of ourselves. So that we can find healing. In the same way, when we do something where we're like, flip. I messed up. We're opening ourselves up to that which is in there. Um, so, for example, if we mess up and, and, and just start finding ourselves becoming really prideful, it just builds up in there until we actually deal with it and realize this is something I need to get out of here. And so we, we, we work through repentance. We're sorry for joining with these things that are actually destroying us. And we ask God to replace it with something different. You see, Jesus is wanting us. He, he longs to give us a new heart. He's longing to give us a heart that works out of a place and operates out of a place of love and joy and peace. In Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 19, he says, And I'll give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I'll give them a heart of flesh. Romans 10 verses 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one, is, one confesses and is saved. And then we get to the part where we respond to God 
And from Psalm 51, it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The incredible thing about Jesus is that when we're going through those hard times where we think we're just going to drop out of everything and go and be a rock climb in the middle of nowhere, He's like, I'm with you in that. I'm coming. When we mess up and we break ourselves and we feel like we've actually just messed up too far and we're too broken to actually be put back together, He's like, I know you and I've created you. I see your broken heart. I will give you a new heart. I can renew your mind. I can renew a right spirit within you. And so I want to encourage you in this next week to check your heart, to guard your heart, to be attentive to what's happening. And if you're finding yourself in a place where you, you're not stoked with what you're finding, be quick to come to Jesus to get a new heart. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to say you're sorry. So I'm going to close by praying for you guys. And I look forward to Bevan closing us off next week with showing us some of the, the actions, the hands. What are some of the things that, that are really good overflowing from these things?